So I recognize some faces, and some of you are probably wondering, who am I and why am I standing up here? My name is Keith O'Gorick. My wife Becky and I have been coming here for now almost 34 years. Um, we have two older daughters, both married, grandchildren away from here. So we reflect often that when our kids were school age, we were probably here 48 out of 52 Sundays a year, but with grandkids away, those of you who have them will understand there's a draw outside of Boone County for us many weekends, um, but we're blessed to do that. So I always love the opportunity to come and have uh, some time to open God's Word with us, and uh, so let me begin by praying, and then we'll jump into what the Lord uh, has for us this morning. Lord, I thank you for the promise in Scripture that says that your Word will not return void. I thank you that I stand on that this morning, that it's not me who needs to do the work here, but you, through your Holy Spirit and through your word, needs to renew our minds and renew us so that you might produce in us the fruit of righteousness. That's our goal here this morning, Lord, is that we might reflect more of who you are in our own lives. We thank you for this time to gather together. We thank you that you've given us strength and opportunity to gather freely here. And we do pray for those around the world who don't have this privilege, who can't gather freely. We pray that you would continue to give them courage and strength and Allow them to be uh, a body wherever they might be. Thank you for your word and what you have for us this morning. May it encourage us and strengthen us and allow us to walk more faithfully with you. Amen. All right, well, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you know that this summer we're focusing on this idea of overflowing generosity, receiving and extending the grace of God. Um, when I was in college, one of my best friends graduated and went on to coach college football. And then a few, we, few years after that, he got a call and had an opportunity to move up to the NFL. And over a 14-year career, he coached with the Broncos, the Ravens, the Panthers, the Jaguars, and the Falcons. Now, some of you sitting here are thinking, it sounds like he worked at a zoo. Some of you who appreciate NFL football will know that that's pretty significant. And one of the things that we always did was take opportunity to go maybe visit him where he was at, uh, both me and my friends from school, but also my family who knew him well. But one of the great things is every time his team would come to Indianapolis to play the Colts, I'd make sure and we'd make sure that we saw each other. And it was always Saturday evening before a Sunday game at the team hotel downtown. And we um, would often go down with my wife and my, my daughters who knew him and love him. But I also took the occasion um, to take high school boys who were part of our church body who were playing football to go down there with me. And uh, one of the things that I thought that why that was important is because here's a man who obviously has likely achieved the highest level of football coaching that you can, um, but also was a man who faithfully and passionately walked with God. One of his best friends for many years has been Tony Dungy, and they still remain that way. But what we would do often is we'd meet in the lobby of the hotel, and then he had worked out on every occasion for us to attend the chapel service that Saturday evening. And just every NFL team has a, has a chaplain, that, as far as I'm aware, and they always have a chapel service. And over the years, he was at Jacksonville quite a while, and I got to know the Jacksonville chaplain. And he would invite uh, myself, and then the students I would bring 
to the chapel service. And what I really appreciated about that is he wouldn't set us in a group. He would make sure that he would intersperse us with the players. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been up close to an NFL lineman, <laughs> defense or offense, but those men are huge, huge in ways you can't ever imagine. Um, and so we'd go into the chapel service and we'd intersperse. And there was one particular occasion where one of our students was sitting in front of me and there was this giant, giant man um, sitting next to him. And that night, the chaplain didn't speak, but he brought in a special speaker. And he says to everyone, he goes, okay, I want you to pull out your wallets. And so the NFL player pulls out his wallet and it was probably some Louis Vuitton leather thing. And the student pulls out his and it's one of those Velcro wallets, has like duct tape on it, right? And then the speaker says, okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to hand it to the person next to you. So the football player hands it to our student and he looks at this thing, he's never seen a wallet like that, and he hands him his Velcro wallet, kind of embarrassed. And then the speaker says, okay, now I want you to open the wallet and see what's inside of it. And I still remember the expression on this kid's face. He opens it up, and I think there were like 10 crisp $100 bills in there. He'd probably never seen that much cash in his life. And the football player, being a good sport, ripped the Velcro, opened it up. And I think there was probably like a buy one, get one free Whopper coupon. I think there was like a punch card for Jimmy John. I'm pretty sure there was a token from Chuck E. Cheese. And there were like eight crumpled dollar bills because we were going to Steak and Shake afterwards. And then the chaplain said this, or the speaker said this, he goes, now I want you to know that you can spend all the money that you've just been given. And I could read that kid's face. He's thinking, Xbox, Taco Bell for life. And the football player just chuckled. But then the speaker said, now, now that you've decided how you're gonna spend it, you need to go back to the person who gave you that money and tell them what you did with it. And I'll never forget this, that student kind of looked at the guy and just kind of smiled. <laughs> he had never said anything, but the guilt had overcome him because he knew he had been frivolous with the money that he had just been given. And now the speaker says, okay, you can give the wallets back. And that kid handed that wallet back as quick as he could. Now, every time I think of that story, it makes me smile. But I love it because it illustrates such an important principle for us to understand. And that is it's a decision we need to make every day about not only the money we've been given, but also all of creation. And that is this. Is it a gift that we've been given for which we will be accountable for? Or is it a possession that we consume and can do with it whatever we want? That was the point that that speaker was trying to make to those NFL football players because he went on to say, most of you are making more money than most people will ever make in their life and maybe more money than you ever imagined. But you need to know that as a follower of Christ, how you think about your money needs to be differently than everyone else. I'll never forget that illustration because it's such a powerful reminder and a foundational question we must all answer about our life and about the money that we have. And that's our consideration for this morning. How do we think about generosity specifically with money? Now, money is a topic the Bible actually talks a lot about. There are thousands of verses that speak to money. There are some biblical scholars that say that Jesus used money or talked about money 
or told parables about money more than any other topic that he spoke about. And yet, very often, we feel uncomfortable when we think about this topic. But it's such an important thing because the Bible says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Years ago, there was a man who I had great respect for, and he said, you can tell me anything you want about your life. All you need to do is show me your checkbook and your calendar, and I'll tell you what your priorities are. And that's how we need to think about this. Because it's a topic that we often forget. The nation of Israel forgot this as well, too. If you can put up the next slide. God had to remind the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He said, when you have eaten and are satisfied, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied and you build good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks increase and your silver and gold increase and everything that you have increases, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth in order to confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The nation Israel needed to be continually reminded that as God blessed them, that he was the source of this blessing. And that's why it's important for us each day to decide, is it a gift or is it a possession? Is it something I will get blessed or be accountable for? Or is it something that I can use any way I want? You see, God gave them wealth really to establish four, four things. Number one, they were to establish their households. Number two, they were to establish themselves in some trade or something. But they were also to use their money to sustain his work and to care for the poor. Now, we don't have time to unpack all that in the, in the um, Old Testament. But trust me, if you go back and look, those were the four purposes to wealth. And I think it's as much for us as well. So one of the questions I always ask is, what should we do with money? If this is true that it's a gift and not a possession, if it's true that God has given us to do these four things, what should we do with money? Years ago, I had an opportunity to talk to a very, very wealthy investor, a man I respected greatly for his business acumen. I don't know what his net worth was, but I suspect it was probably 100, 100 million or more. And um, he was one of these gentlemen who I think didn't quite have, he had all the material possessions you could ever imagine, but I wasn't sure that he was really satisfied in his life. So I asked him one time, I said, how much is enough? And he, he said this to me, he said, you know, at some point money's just how you keep score. And I'll never forget that because I thought that was a sad way to look at money in light of how the Bible talks about money. The Bible actually gives us Five purposes for money. Five purposes for money. Now, I put the verses up there so that we're not flipping around all through the Bible, but you can follow these along. The first thing and the first category for money is tithing and giving to the Lord. Now, this is an important idea because this goes back to the Old Testament and the New Testament because it's an acknowledgement of what I just said, that everything we have comes from the Lord. If you were to go back and to look in the Old Testament, one of the things that they did is they gave the first fruits. The first fruits were the 
acknowledgement that that first crop that they were getting was because the Lord blessed them with rain and seed and brought fruit for them to eat. And so when we make a tithe or an offering to sustain his work, we're actually doing that as an act of worship, acknowledging everything that I have is from you. And so these first fruits that come are going to go back to you. People have looked at it the wrong way, and you'll hear this another time or in a little bit, but they look at it as an invoice from God. It's not how it is at all. It's actually an acknowledgement that God is the one who's blessed us and given us everything. Now, the second thing is taxes. Uh, the verse that says, um, that, that render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto the Lord which is the Lord's. In that, Jesus is saying that we have to pay taxes in an appropriate way. Now, there's nothing that says that we have to pay the maximum amount of tax. We can be wise about how we reduce our tax burden. We can be wise in legally ways to, to do things, um, but that's a second uh, category. A third category is providing for the needs of people in their household. This verse in 1 Timothy said, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, a lot of times we hear this reflected in deadbeat dads, people who have fathered children, men who father children and aren't taking care of their children. But one of the key things that we also need to consider is there's a distinction between needs, wants, and desires. So in providing for our household, we certainly need to provide for their needs. Wants can be something different, and desires can be even greater than that. And so we need to be discerning about are we providing for needs or are we just fulfilling every possible desire that we need for our household? Because that can have an effect on how we think about money. The fourth category is that we pay debts. Now, there are some people that will say that debt, all debt is bad. I don't think the Bible sets forth that. I think the Bible says that there's a way to use debt wisely. There's a way that if you're lending, you cannot... Uh, uh, participate in usury, which is, you know, uh, wrong interest rates that really penalize people. But it says the wicked borrows and does not pay back. So as we think about debt, we need to think about what debt we're taking on and can we pay this back. A number of years ago, there was a man I know that was in partnership with someone in business, and that partner did some stuff that put this man in jeopardy, put his house in jeopardy, put his family in jeopardy. And while he didn't want to do it, he legally had no choice but to file bankruptcy to protect the assets so he had a house to live in and a car for his wife to drive. But what he did is he went around to everyone who he owed money to. And he explained to them, listen, I am going to have to file bankruptcy so I can keep my house and keep our cars and just keep my family going. But you have my word, and he quoted this verse, that over time, though the law does not require it, and the law will relieve me of my obligation to pay you what I owe you, I will work as long as it takes, even if it's 10 years or 15 years, to pay you what I owe you. Because I'm a Christian, and I don't believe I should leave you that way. Imagine what it was like for those business people to have that conversation. And he did. It took him years, it took him years to pay it off. But he settled that debt with people because the wicked borrow and don't repay. 
So even if the law allows us freedom, which in this case he took freedom, and he sought counsel to make sure he did the wisest thing, he didn't feel like he was, his obligation was, was released. And then the last thing is um, creating a surplus. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Now this idea, I think, for Becky and I when we were a young married couple was kind of the biggest idea that we hadn't thought about yet. Now the surplus has two purposes. One is to make sure that you're saving for future needs and also saving to protect yourself down the road when you maybe no longer can work. But it's also creating a surplus so that you have the opportunity to help and meet needs that are out there. It's interesting that the opposite of stealing here isn't stop stealing. Did you notice that in the verse? The verse doesn't say, if you're stealing, stop stealing. It says, no, stop stealing work so that you can create a surplus so that you have something to share that are for those that are in need. But why I spent some time unpacking this particular list of things is because money has to be thought of holistically and thought about over time. The decisions you make about taxes, about providing for your needs, about paying debts and how much, will determine how much of a surplus you can create and give. And this is important. The idea here isn't to just give with what you have left over. Fill up all these other categories and if you have something left over, give it. It's the idea that I'm gonna use my money in a way that brings glory to God and, and, and meets needs. And so a lot of times we think about borrowing money or we think about, and we don't think about the longer view that the goal is to create a surplus so that we might meet the needs that are out there. And so often when I work with young couples, this is the, one of the first things I talk about. It's like if you start in your 20s with this idea in mind, when you get to your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, you may have a great surplus to be able to bless a lot of people. But if you don't think about it this way, you'll just continue to churn through and use your money like it's a possession instead of using it in such a way that you can be generous with it. Now, what I like about this, these categories is it doesn't say you can't have things. It doesn't say you can't enjoy life. It doesn't say that you can't meet the needs of your household, whether that means a vacation or a car or a house or, or whatever that might mean. But it just says, think about it in light of the end goal of creating something so that you might bless other people with the money you've been giving. And in that blessing other people, what you're doing is you're reflecting this bigger idea that you've been given something and now it's for you to share with others. God has blessed you so that you might bless others. That's how generosity works, no matter what the category is, but it works that way, especially when it comes to money. And one of the things that I find over the years is that people haven't really stopped to think about money from this kind of perspective and to think about it in a long-term perspective, to think about it with the idea that I want to be as generous as I can the older I get, as the Lord allows. Now, how does this look when it's played out in the life of a church. So let's turn to a particular passage in 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, I would ask you to take it out and we're gonna to read together. We're actually gonna read 15 verses in this, uh, in this uh, chapter in Corinthians. So in Corinthians, what we have is 
Paul, in chapter 9, picking up a conversation with the Corinthian church about a gift that they had pledged to give to help the saints in Jerusalem. If you were to go back and read chapter 8, you'd find out that the Macedonian church, which was much less rich than the Corinthian church, had already given a gift inspired by what they heard the Corinthians were going to do. But the Corinthians, if you know the letters, they had some stuff that was messed up and they hadn't fulfilled the gift yet. So Paul was bringing back that to their attention so they would fulfill it. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. It says, For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I, heard, I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Acacia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that your boasting about you may not be empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge, urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised beautiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now this is such a powerful illustration of how a church needs to respond in light of needs. And Paul is reminding them that their response has already inspired the Macedonians, but also um, is, is, is going to create a thanksgiving. So we see in verse 6 this promise of generosity, right? Now this sometimes has been misused by certain teachers. It says, it's actually an agricultural uh, principle. It says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You've probably heard or seen some preachers on television who use this as a way to manipulate people to give as though God is an ATM. That's not the principle here. The principle that Paul is drawing from in the Old Testament is a simple agricultural one. If you don't throw any seed in the field, you're not going to see any harvest. But as you sow seeds, it may be years and years and years before you see things come to bear. I've seen that in many lives. People who gave small gifts, maybe back in the 50s and 60s, help start ministries that now have flourished in amazing ways. What he's saying here is if you hold all your seed to yourself, you're never going to see any fruit. And that's an important principle here of generosity. The second thing, though, is the disposition of generosity. That's in verse 7. Now, this is a verse that often gets quote, quote, 
quoted. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's that idea again. It's purposed in your heart. This is actually between you and the Lord. You should ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that I should give? How is it that I should arrange my estate so that I can maximize what I do to achieve what you've put on my heart to do? It's not an invoice from God. The second thing, though, is the amount is never the issue. Eric, a few weeks ago in Mark, talked about the widow's might, and he did such a great job of unpacking that idea that for, for, for the kingdom of God, it's never a matter of the amount, it's a matter of the heart. So that's important. No matter what you have, this is not about how much, it's about what you do with what you have. And then there's this last phrase there in verse 7. It says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's a difficult word I found for sometimes the translators to deal with. Um, cheerful is sometimes translated hilarious, maybe, in some of your, your, your uh, Bibles. Um, and actually, probably the best word that I've seen associated with it is this word propitious, which is probably not a word you've ever seen on Wheel of Fortune, but it's an important one because it means favorably disposed. It means already making the decision that I'm going to do this. I'm not waiting to decide whether I'm going to give. I've already made that decision. Now, this may not be the best illustration, but it's the best one I could think of because I read a lot of books to our grandkids. Are you familiar with the book Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> Tigger is a cheerful giver. He's bouncing around. He's just excited to be alive. Eeyore, not so much. It reflects a condition of their hearts. And what Paul is saying here is what the Lord loves is someone who's already made the decision to give. It's just a question of who and to where and to how much. Versus the person who's waiting for the invoice from God and needs to be manipulated or guilted into giving or is only doing it because they think they're going to get something in return. So the question for you is, are you more like Tigger? Or are you more like Eeyore when it comes to giving? But the reason why that's important is because of the reason that God gives us that we can be generous. In verse 8, it says, and God is able, if you, if, you, if you have a pen, you can even circle these, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you have an abundance for every good deed. Now those words all and every are actually the same Greek word. And what he's saying here, if it's not clear, is everything you need, God is going to supply. Not everything you want, maybe not everything you desire, but everything you need, God is going to supply. So the reason why we can be free and liberal in our generosity with money is because God's promise is that he will meet our needs. Now what I've learned and my wife has learned and our family has learned over the years is sometimes that's not always a paycheck. Sometimes things come in very different ways. But God's promise is that he will meet our needs. He says the same thing um, here in verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's where some people get a little askew in this verse. In the end, what he wants to do is produce righteousness in you. Not necessarily fill up your bank account, a big car, or any of those things. That may happen, but in the end, he wants us to be more like Christ and produce the righteousness in Christ in us. When I was a young man, my, I was in a wedding, and one of my friend's father-in-law 
was a construction guy. He was, I'm not even sure he graduated from high school. He's a very quiet man. But he had a very successful firm that uh, built buildings, used steel. And I remember when we were at the wedding, I found out that he would pay to send all the materials and pay his crew, if they wanted to, to go to Central America and South America and build churches. And I was a business school graduate and relatively young man and didn't really understand these things as well as I do now. And I was just like thinking, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like I was doing the math in my head, like what's that gotta cost you to ship all that stuff? And he, he made it an option for his workers. He paid their wage. He said, you don't have to go, but if you want, I will pay your wage, and I will pay to erect, to erect these church buildings throughout South America and Central America. And I was going on to him, just saying, like, oh, that's just crazy, that's just crazy. And he just listened to me very quietly, and he looked at me, and he said something I never, ever forgot. He said, well, you can't outgive God. And I thought, mic drop, I'm out of here, because this guy had figured something out that we're trying to learn here this morning about generosity. That as God blessed him, he was going to bless. And in this case, he had a particular skill in a particular company that could help build church buildings in places that couldn't afford it. And that's how he used his money, and that's how he used his wealth, and that's how he was generous. But you would never know it, because he never made a big deal about it. But I can tell you that that promise is true. You can't outgive God. And that's what Paul's trying to remind them of here, that every need will be met, every need will be met, everything that you need will be met, if you believe that God is the giver of good gifts and his generosity overflows to us. And then the last thing we see here is the result of generosity. In verse 10, it, 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 we already talked about that, it's, it'll increase the harvest of righteousness in us. But in verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings in God. What happens as a result of this, and also in verse 13, because of the proof given by the ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience, your confession to the gospel of Christ, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and all. In the end, while God uses you as the vessel to be generous with your money, People are thankful and give glory to God for supplying their need. That's the outcome. That's the result of the generosity. Things are accomplished. Needs are met. We are blessed because God has allowed us to give to others. But in the end, he gets the glory and people are drawn to him because they see righteousness worked out in us by giving. And so this man who said you can't outgive God had profound impact, and he's long been gone from this earth, but there are churches that I suspect all over Central America and South America right now, there are believers gathering together to meet, to worship together, because that man years ago decided that he wasn't going to hold his money tightly, and he was going to be generous with God has given him. And so while we're gathering here, there are probably other people speaking in Spanish or Portuguese or whatever language they have, gathering to do the same thing. And I suspect in some cases the stories are told about years ago these Americans showed up, shipped all this stuff there, and built church buildings so that we could gather together as a body of believers in this country where there isn't that opportunity. That's how generosity works. In the end, even after we're gone, 
People may forget who gave the gift. They may never know who gave the gift. But they are thankful and God gets the glory and his kingdom is advanced and righteousness is lived out no matter where people are. So, as we conclude today, there's a few things I want to give you to just think about. Some questions to consider. First of all, have you ever thought about, is everything you have a gift or a possession? That, to me, is the fork in the road. When you wake up every morning, is every day a gift? The air you breathe, the eyes that you see, the rain that fell last night, is it a gift or is it a possession? It changes the way you think. Second of all, do you really believe that God will provide all your needs or not? Because if you don't, then you've got to work really hard in this scarce world to make sure that that happens. But in the end, if you believe that and that he will meet your needs, it changes the way you think about your money. Thirdly, are you cheerful or grudgingly when you think about giving? Do you have a propitious attitude towards giving? Are you Tigger or are you Eeyore? Because God loves Tigger. God loves a cheerful giver. And lastly, are you sowing sparingly or are you sowing bountifully? And when I, when I say sowing sparingly and bountifully, it doesn't just mean in this life now. There are many things that you can do once you are gone to take the resources that God has given you and extend it and multiply it and bless ministries for years and years and years to come. So these are questions I would give you to consider as you think about God's overflowing generosity to us and how we can overflow that generosity to other people with money. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful this morning for your word and its clarity in so many topics. I thank you that you show us how we, how we should think about money, how we should use money, and in the end, how we can be generous with money so that we might create uh, righteousness in our own life, but also have people be thankful and give glory to you. Thank you for our time together, and as I prayed at the beginning, I pray that your word would not return void. Amen.